Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Just one guest today, a return visit by the ethnographer Kristen Godsey, who specializes in the post-communist societies of Eastern Europe. Godsey was on the show in August, discussing a piece she wrote for the New York Times with the engaging title, Why Women Had Better Sex Under Socialism. The reasons? More leisure, less rat race, better social protections, and greater gender equality. As Godsey said in the interview, to appeal to women under capitalism helps for men to have money. Under communism, they had to be interesting. Now she's out with a new book, Red Hangover, Legacies of 20th Century Communism, published by Duke University Press. Its structure is unusual for an academic book, a series of essays interspersed with fictional sketches that evoke the complexities of life under communism and the poverty and displacement that came with its demise. Much of her work is focused on Bulgaria, but she also reports in the experience of East Germany after the wall fell. In the book, Godsey quotes a Bulgarian friend who was once an enthusiastic proponent of what Western development experts used to call the transition, but who has been quite disillusioned by the course of the last 28 years. She says, I thought we were fighting for freedom, for democracy, for principles that I believed in, but it was all a lie. What we have now is worse than what we had before. I used to think that maybe we did something wrong, but now I realize that the whole thing was rotten from the start. 1989 was not about bringing liberty to the people of Eastern Europe. It was about expanding markets for Western companies. They used the language of freedom and democracy, but it was all about money. Sounds familiar to many of us, but for the residents of the former communist countries, it was news. Kristen Godsey is a professor in the Department of Russian and Eastern European Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Kristen Godsey. Let's start uh, with the question of genre. This is an unusual book, you know, in terms of genre. It's not exactly your traditional scholarly work. Um, how did you decide to write this collection of essays interspersed with fictions? So I had actually written another collection like this in 2011 called Lost in Transition, Ethnographies of Every Life, uh, Everyday Life After Communism. And so this wasn't the first time that I decided to kind of blend critical essays with short fiction. It is unusual, especially particularly unusual for an academic to do that. But I thought that it was really, sometimes it's really important to play with genre because there are certain ideas that in a critical sort of nonfiction essay can come across as very didactic and that in fiction you can play with in a little bit more of an interesting way. So, you know, a classic sort of fiction admonition is show, don't tell. And academics, because of the work that we do, we generally tend to tell. <laughs> and I uh, decided that for a book like this and, and for the previous book that I wrote back in 2011, sometimes it's really more valuable to show, particularly when your audience is undergraduate students, so people between the age of 18 and 22, and, and then more broadly to a general educated audience interested in questions of economic transition, communism, and post-communism in Eastern Europe. It's funny you should mention undergraduates aged 18 to 22. Uh, for them, communism is ancient history. Uh, it fell before they were born. What do they make of the, the whole idea of communism and the experience of you know, Soviet-style socialism? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. And I would say that ever since um, Bernie Sanders' uh, primary challenge to Hillary Clinton, there's been a real total new landscape in the discussion of socialist and communist ideas. And you can see this really clearly on subreddits, on the Reddit site, like full communism subreddit and things like this. But also earlier this year in January 2017, a young journalist, Julia Mead, wrote a really wonderful piece in The Nation called Why Millennials Aren't Afraid of Socialism. And she basically argues that 
look, millennials are fed up and frustrated with the unequal world that they've inherited, and they want to try to do something to change it. And they feel like they were fed a kind of line about socialism and communist ideas by the Cold War generation that really made it seem as if there was no alternative to capitalism. And in fact, as she got older, she realized that there is a really huge alternative to capitalism and that those ideas had intentionally been prevented from being discussed among young people. So they're not taught in schools. They're not even discussed. And if they're ever mentioned in public, they're often, you know, castigated as essentially bad or inevitably leading to the gulag or so on and so forth. So I think that the, the culture has changed among these young people, even though they were born after the fall of the Berlin Wall. They think of socialism as Denmark and Sweden and Norway, and they don't necessarily associate socialism with the Soviet Union or Poland or Eastern Germany. It's an interesting moment in history, and part of that has to do with Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. Part of that has to do with Bernie Sanders here in the United States. And I just think there's also, through the internet, there are these vibrant kind of leftist communities in Germany. You have Die Linke, which is a very left party that runs for parliament. Um, the, the Bundestag it does very well, especially in local elections. And, and you have left parties across Europe that are increasingly being more and more linked in together internationally. And so young people are coming to these ideas with fresh eyes, not tainted by the baggage of, of the Cold War. Yeah, there's some right-wing website was very alarmed uh, on Wednesday uh, because, what, something like 17 uh, candidates endorsed by DSA won election uh, on Tuesday. Yeah. But they really brought out all the old red-baiting tropes. And I don't know, it just seems comical. I don't think that's going to have any kind of impact uh, in the audience that they intend for it to. Yeah, it is very comical, actually. And, you know, the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation in Washington, D.C., is ringing the alarm bells because millennials are, you know, are more inclined towards socialism and they're putting up billboards in Times Square trying to convince people that communism is really evil and it doesn't play well. There are certainly very many negative legacies of, of communism, particularly it, the way that it was realized in Eastern Europe in the 20th century with the travel restrictions and the secret police and consumer shortages and, and the labor camps. Those things were real, but the ideals of communism and democratic socialism in the case of the DSA um, can be very easily distanced from those terrible uh, realities in Eastern Europe in the 20th century if you look at 21st century countries like Norway or Finland, particularly a place like Norway where the state actually owns a big chunk of the economy and yet it, it maintains a kind of commitment to democracy and democratic politics and the state is incredibly transparent and not corrupt. So I think that uh, the right wing is increasingly apoplectic because they fear the return of these socialist ideas and their redistributive consequences, but they don't have a rational language to refute them. And so they're just sort of pandering to kind of base emotion and a kind of um, intellectual bullying is what I would call it. Like, how dare you think a, a socialist thought um, you must be all of the negative things associated with Stalin in order because you're, you know, you're advocating for more redistribution, redistribution through taxation or something like that. I want to return to um, these these problems of communism, as that, that journal used to be called, in a bit. <laughs> but uh, at the beginning of your book, uh, you uh, have an essay about the self-immolations in Bulgaria, about which I knew nothing, which were really shocking and dramatic. How many people burn themselves and why? Yeah, no, it's it's awful. Um, 
you know, by by many counts, um, I mean, in, in some cases they're still going on. But in 2013, the period that I was writing about, it was a very short period of time when six people in a row set themselves alight. And I happened to be down the block from from one of them while I was working in the archives one March in 2013. And these were desperate people really protesting poverty and corruption and the terrible turn that their country has taken since the collapse of communism in 1989. And these are just self-immolations, people actually dumping kerosene or petrol on their heads and lighting a match. And there have been tons of suicides, people jumping off bridges, throwing themselves in front of trains. And I think people don't you know, the the Western public doesn't realize these incredible social costs of economic transition in Eastern Europe after 1989, the pain and suffering that we've inflicted. And we, by I may say the United States has inflicted in some ways on these East European populations. And so what I tried to do in that essay was really capture the visceral experience of, of self-immolation as an act of political protest it's a very dramatic form of suicide. It's like you're trying to make a political point. I mean, you just don't go and shoot yourself quietly in the head or jump off a bridge. There's something very dramatic and you know lapel-grabbing about a self-immolation. And especially when you do it in front of the presidency. As two of the um, people that I discussed, they, they stood in front of the presidential palace in downtown Sofia and lit themselves alight as a form of protest. Uh, the most famous case was a a young man who did it in front of the mayor's office in Varna, hoping to force the mayor's um, resignation. Varna is a city on the Black Sea. So these were definitely political protests. And they were political protests about the form of capitalism that had been imported into Eastern Europe after 1989. But do we see anything about uh, victims of capitalism or the crimes of capitalism? No, of course not. All we ever hear about are the victims of communism. Um, And I think it's important to realize that there are victims of capitalism, too, in the same way that Tibetan monks uh, self-immolate to protest the continued Chinese uh, domination of Tibet. These are people in in Bulgaria that were protesting the form of economic system that was, you know, they felt imposed on them after 1989. And, you know, there was a very brief amount of attention in the media to these self-immolations. And then people just moved on. The news cycle moved on and people forgot about it. You recount a, a Bulgarian joke where was a guy has a nightmare. Um, the, uh, the medicine cabinet is full of medicines and the refrigerator is uh, full of food. And uh, he thought the nightmare had returned. <laughs> the nightmare of communism had returned. Right, right, right. Did Bulgaria suffer uniquely compared to its neighbors or was it kind of typical of, of a lot of Eastern Europe? You mean post-89? Yeah, post-89. Yeah, post-89. No, Bulgaria was not uh, a unique uh, suffering. I mean, in fact, we have very good evidence that um, when we look at male life expectancy in places of the former Soviet Union in eastern Germany, um, there was a massive decline in male life expectancy, particularly in Russia. There was a report that recently came out from the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development which found that people born in the three years period before or after the transition year, which would be 1989 in most East European countries and 1991 in the Soviet Union, they are a full centimeter shorter than their cohorts on either side of them. And a full centimeter of height is what you would find if there had been a war. 
this is what you would find is extreme stress and extreme malnutrition associated with the transition from communism to free markets. This is a really striking result. This was just published a couple of months ago. People in the medical community have talked about an excess of a million deaths attributable to private, rapid privatization, which means 25% of the economy or more was privatized in a short period of time. So there were massive social effects in Eastern Europe, um, which explains partially the nostalgia for communism. And I also think, as I argue in the book, it also explains the rise of some of these really right-wing, almost neo-fascist governments in places like Hungary and Poland. I'm speaking with Kristen Godsey, author of Red Hangover from Duke University Press. I'm sure uh, optimists in the West would say, well, you know, these are just uh, rough spots associated with transition, and now things you know, recovered. If we look at the longer term, things have improved. Is that true? No, no. In, and in 2014, a prominent economist based, I think, at somewhere in New York, maybe at CUNY or NYU. Oh, Branko Milanovic, right? Yeah, Branko Milanovic, exactly. Wrote a, a wonderful piece called For Whom the Wall Fell. And he showed that, you know, out of the, the millions of people in these transition countries, maybe only the top 10% are better off than they were in 89. And many, many of them are actually worse off than they were in 89 or 91 when communism fell. So yeah, there was this wonderful narrative in the 90s that if you just stuck it out, yes, transition would be hard, and but it would be worth it in the end. You know, the bright capitalist future would come eventually. But it's been almost 30 years. And in places like Bulgaria, which is the poorest country in the European Union, living standards have continued to fall. Population has been devastated by collapsing birth rate, by out-migration. These are countries that are almost no longer sustainable because of the, the demographic and economic catastrophes that befell them after 1989. Now, some of that was self-imposed. Certainly, there were local elites that were corrupt. Um, there were people from the state, former state security services that took over vast swaths of the economy illegally. There was crime, mafia, corruption, so on and so forth. But a lot of it also had to do with the way the transition was imposed. Uh, these countries had very little time to make this transition it was at a moment of, you know, the neoliberal consensus where social safety nets, nets had to be dismantled very quickly. Privatization had to be achieved rapidly. There was very little in the way of a cushion for ordinary people. And so, yeah, the, 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 the landscape of many of these East European countries, particularly in the, in the rural areas, are just pockmarked with the remains of a civilization that, you know, for all of its many faults, actually did take care of a lot of people. And those people have just been victimized really quite severely, I think, in the last 30 years. And that's a story that nobody wants to hear because everybody wants to believe that democracy and free markets bring prosperity. And, and, and many people in the West who brought that message to Eastern Europe in the 90s really, truly, honestly, sincerely believed that. And I think that the evidence, including, you know, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, they've struggled for a long time. They thought that things were going to go much better than they did. And, you know, this latest report, actually, you know, they, they feel a little guilty, I think, for the way things have gone. And they're talking about the political ramifications of increasing inequality in the region. And they're very concerned about the rise of the right wing. 
The underlying thought for a lot of these technocrats who supervise the transition was that capitalism is something natural about it, and that uh, these uh, this communist thing was an artificial imposition from outside. Take that away, and uh, things will sprout naturally, just like plants in spring. Absolutely. Oh yeah, and and you know I was in Bulgaria and traveling in Eastern Europe in the '90s, and you know to the extent that there was corruption and that there was you know just outright theft of state resources that otherwise should have been distributed more equitably to the populations of these countries, people would argue that oh well that's just the robber baron era of capitalism. There has to be an initial distribution of wealth. And then eventually markets will sort of self-regulate, things will reach equilibrium, and, and you'll have good sustained growth that is equitably distributed, and so on and so forth. But capitalism you know, requires a, a fair amount of state regulation. It certainly requires strong institutions to protect private property. And it doesn't, you know, left to its own devices, it's actually quite a brutal system, I think. Um, you have the mafia, you know, the profit incentive works in all sorts of ways. And one of the stories in the book is about organized crime and trafficking of children, which, you know, is also a market, it's supply and demand. Just to steal their organs. Yeah, that's the most horrible thing about it. That was, that was really very shocking and distressing. Organ harvesting from Bulgarian orphanages. Yeah, they were Italian couples who had ill children, if you believe the reports, um, could essentially place orders for organs and, you know, some kind of Albanian. I, I, again, this was this was a news report that I read at the time. There were criminal underworld syndicates that were basically arranging for the organs of Bulgarian orphans to be sold in the West. And I don't think any capitalist would advocate for that kind of market, obviously. Um, but without, a str without strong institutions, that's what you know, can happen. And I think that the big thing that's important to realize in the case of Eastern Europe is that the communists, there's a joke that said, you know, everything the communists told us about communism was wrong, but everything the communists told us about capitalism was right. And so a lot of these people grew up believing that Capitalism was an immoral system where people who were willing to lie and cheat and steal and kill would win. And that was why that's how the communists justified all of the oppressive, oppressive measures associated with the communist state. So when capitalism came, you had these populations of people who understood that that's what capitalism was. <laughs> capitalism would be immoral. And they looked around and they saw that the most immoral people were making the most money. And they thought, oh, okay, this is how capitalism works. You know, there was very little in the way of kind of local control from the point of view of Western institutions like the IMF or the World Bank or the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. They um, wanted to dismantle the communist state as quickly as possible because they were afraid, of course, of kind of resurgent left movements that would renationalize state assets and, and then the Cold War wouldn't be over. So it was a moment, uh, an opportunity where the West could have done what it did in Germany after World War II or in Japan and, and tried to rebuild these countries and make sure that they became strong democracies. And they didn't. Well, of course, they did those things at the end of World War II because they were afraid of the, the, the communist threat. Uh, and without the communist threat, they're going to act in their worst impulses. You, know, you can see it you know, with the dismantling of the welfare state in, in a lot of Western Europe and what little one we had here. Without the threat of communism, you know, just let it rip. 
Exactly. I mean, I, I also think that, you know, the Marshall Plan, especially in Germany, was a response to the failures of the Treaty of Versailles. There was an understanding that you could not just leave Germany in economic shambles. But you're absolutely right. The threat of communism, the threat of these, uh, or even democratic socialism, if you think about like, you know, Salvador Allende in Chile, that, that you had to make concessions to the workers, you had to expand the social safety net, you had to have things like the New Deal in order to stave off a workers' revolution. And I do think that there's, there's a way in which the history of the 20th century was profoundly shaped by this communist ideal, even in the West, where we were completely 100% anti-communist, people embraced policies of redistribution precisely to prevent the kind of revolutionary chaos they saw happening in Russia in after 1917, and, and then the, the fear of communist domination in Eastern Europe after the Second World War. You write about the uh, uh, celebration of the 25th anniversary of the fall of the wall, the Mauerfall in um, West Berlin, or Berlin, rather. Yeah, <laughs> old, Berlin, yeah. Old, old habits die hard. <laughs> yes, it's hard to say, I know. <laughs> Jody Dean still calls it Leningrad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it was all triumphalism, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. And there was no sense of what was lost in the East. You cite a November 89 poll uh, in East Germany. It showed that 89% of the population supported some kind of reformed, democratized socialism, and just 5% wanted capitalism. Yet, you know, they completely rolled over popular opinion in the name of democracy in, what, inside a year. It was, you know, uh, a fait accompli. Let's talk some about the, the sense of loss in the East, in East Germany. What, uh, what, what do the East Germans think about what happened to them in uh, 1989? Yeah. And that's something that for me was really profoundly personal because I've been doing most of my ethnographic work down in the Balkans for the majority of my career. I've worked um, as an ethnographer in, in Bulgaria. And then I had the opportunity to live in Germany for a couple of years. And, and I spent some time in Jena, which is in the former East, and talked to a lot of Eastern Germans about the transition process. And it was devastating in Eastern Germany. It's remarkable how many ordinary people I could just ask a question about, like, you know, so what were the industries in your town before 89? And they could cite every single state-owned enterprises and enterprise and how many employees had been employed there prior to 89. There was a great sense of loss in terms of the West kind of carpetbagging the East and selling off basically taking up, buying all of the valuable industrial enterprises and then selling off or shutting down all those that were competing with Western goods. Pensions in between Eastern and Western Germany have not been equalized. So people who spent their entire working years under the old system still get lesser pension. Wages are much higher in the West. So you have a lot of out-migration of young people from Eastern Germany into Western Germany. So it's a very palpable feeling of loss still. In, in the East. Um, I mean, most East Germans will say, no, we don't want to go back to communism the way that it was. Nobody loved Hanukkah or the Stasi. I mean, everybody's quite aware that it was, um, nobody wants the wall back. But many of them, and, and certainly many East German intellectuals that I have spoken to, and a lot of ordinary East Germans will say there could have been a different way. We didn't need to take on this whole package of West German capitalism. We could have had a more sort of democratic socialist model. I mean, of course, compared to the United States, Germany is pretty democratic and socialist. But compared to other countries, 
Um, they could, you know, and I think it's important to remember that if you look at like um, Dubček in Czechoslovakia before the Prague Spring, or even Gorbachev in the Soviet Union in the 80s, many of many people within the Communist Party themselves saw themselves as reformers. They understood that there were fundamental problems with the communist system, and they wanted to fix them. And I think a lot of East Germans too wanted to fix what they saw as the deficiencies of East German communism. And then, as you point out, boy. The reunification agreement is signed, and by October 3rd, 1990, the GDR just ceases to exist as a country. And people really felt that in a profound way as a loss. We just heard the first part of my interview with Kristen Godsey, a professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Her book, Red Hangover, is just out from Duke University Press. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the first movement of the string quartet number six by Dmitry Shostakovich, a composer who embodied all the contradictions of Homo Sovieticus. It was performed by the Sorrel Quartet. And now the second half of my interview with Kristen Godsey, author of Red Hangover, just out from Duke University Press. You write about the, uh, the historian's battle in uh, Germany some years ago, in which there is this, well, Ernst Nolte, I guess, is the one who got it going. Um, but they're trying to make an equivalence between Stalin and Hitler. And so the the gulag was the equivalent of the Holocaust. That, of course, is a a fight with great ideological implications. What what were you thinking as the the, the ideological applications of that attempted equivalence? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, I think Nolte's point was that class murder preceded race murder is how he, he phrased it, right? So that Hitler's policies were somehow, in Nolte's mind, a reasonable reaction to Bolshevik class politics. The New York Times published an op-ed the other day on the anniversary of the the Russian Revolution that said, uh, if there had been no Lenin, there would be no Hitler. And that's certainly Nolte. I think many people would would argue that, yes, um, that the fear of, I mean, and certainly if you think about the Reichstag fire, right, that, that allows Hitler to declare uh, martial law and, and you know, really uh, grasp power and, and dissolve the Weimar Republic, um, it is fear of communism, right? That Reichstag fire was, was supposed to be the signal of a German Bolshevik-style revolution, and that's how Hitler consolidates his power. So, 
you know, it's a complicated history, I think. Um, but in Germany, it's very, very, very heated because, of course, there were many communists in the Weimar Republic who were very much opposed to the rise of Hitler and the Nazis. And many Americans don't realize that the first concentration camp prisoners in Germany were communists, um, some of them elected officials in, in the Bundestag. So there was a massive purge. Of, in fact, one of the greatest stories that I heard of a young man in eastern Germany was today was his grandfather and his great uncle had been communists in Erfurt uh, during the Weimar Republic. And as Hitler was consolidating power, there was a, a big fear that there was going to be a communist purge. And so many communists were thinking about fleeing into the Soviet Union. And many German communists, in fact, did flee into the Soviet Union. But his great uncle believed that the German communists had to stay in Germany and fight Hitler because somebody had to fight Hitler from the inside. And his grandfather decided to, to flee into the Soviet Union. And of course, his great uncle was killed in a concentration camp by Hitler and the Nazis. And his grandfather survived in the Soviet Union and eventually came back to the GDR and lived and had grandchildren and so on and so forth. And the question that this young man asked is, you know, what's the right decision? Should we have, if more people had left, if more people, sorry, had stayed, would they have been able to prevent Hitler or um, was his grandfather the, made the right decision because they were they were all going to get wiped out? So I think there's you know there, it's it's and, and many young Germ East Germans if you talk to East Germans who have grandparents or great grandparents who were communists during the Weimar period are very proud of that heritage, very proud of that heritage. And so this is a debate that's very very heated in Germany. How do you make the equivalent uh, between Stalinism? And Hitler, uh, you know, Hitlerism, which is it's often called. Um, it's also interesting that even Hannah Arendt herself in her book that, that outlines the sort of political philosophy of totalitarianism, she does not make that equivalent between the Nazis and, and the Soviets. You know, she sees the Soviets as a slightly different model. They're both totalitarian, but they're very different in her mind. But today, those two ideologies get collapsed. And I think that, as I argue in the book, they get collapsed for contemporary political purposes um, that have very little to do with the actual history of these, um, which is a very complicated history, depending on where you are in Europe at the time. Well, as Christopher Hitchens once said before he went bad, uh, unlike Hitler with Stalin, you at least get the idea he was betraying something. <laughs> right, right. But uh, yeah, the, the use uh, that Nolte and his followers are trying to put uh, that equivalence to was to argue against any kind of leftish politics today. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, and what's so interesting about the, the historical strike, of course, is that at the, you know, Habermas and other prominent Western German intellectuals um, completely managed to get German, West German at the time, public opinion aligned against Nolte and this idea that there was an equivalence between communism and, and, and Nazism. It's only after the collapse of the Soviet Union and, and, and communism in Eastern Europe that, you be, that that narrative starts to emerge again. And I think that, that again, the, the narrative serves contemporary political purposes. It, you know, the, it, it's almost a kind of technical debate when you go back and you look at history and, you know, who, which dictator was more brutal and People on the right want it to be about the sheer numbers of people killed under one system or the other. 
Um, obviously, Arendt had a completely different idea of, you know, to totalitarian forms of government and how they operate and whether they're comparable or not. But I think that it's interesting that today, you know, Fox News or, you know, some of these right wing um, websites and, and blogs, you know, they make this equivalency as if it's never been questioned, as if there was never a debate about it, as if it's just fact. And by going back and revisiting the historical strike in, in Germany in the late 80s, it shows how very deep the history of this debate is. And I think that that's something that like contemporary American readers would really benefit from is understanding, you know, the, the, the deep history of these discussions rather than just sort of under, you know, accepting at face value an equivalency that, that has a very political, particular political agenda today. Why do you think so much of the reaction to the dislocations uh, in the East has been to turn to the far right? Why are these neo-Nazi parties so popular in you know Eastern Germany, Poland, Hungary? What's up? Well, I, th I just think it's an absolute frustration on the part of the ordinary people with neoliberal capitalism in Eastern Europe and the way that it's been implemented. They're really angry I mean, obviously at the EU, but they're angry more broadly at just sort of the whole global calculus in which their countries have been really devalued since the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. I mean, you see this very clearly in Russia. And so there's a desire for some kind of alternative. And I don't and I don't think that the left alternative, I mean, it's starting to appear in these countries, but it's been so devalued for so long that people are drifting into just an alternative. And, and let's face it, people in Eastern Germany aren't going to become, you know, radical Islamic ideologues that, you know, religion may not be the best place for them to express their frustration with capitalism. So they're looking for political ideologies. And here's where the historical strike discussion is really important, because if communism and Nazism are equivalents, if Stalin, is, if Stalin and Hitler are equivalents, right, and you have to choose or, you know, society has to choose whether they're going to go to the far right or the far left. I mean, we're seeing this around the world, this incredible polarization that starts to happen in democracies. And if we look at the Weimar Republic um, in Germany as an example, it's at that moment of polarization that democracy generally tends to fall or fail. Um, if you're an economic elite in one of these countries that is experiencing this kind of polarization and Nazism or far right politics and far left politics are the same, then you're going to choose the one that's going to protect your property the best. And so what I fear about this equivalency of the left and right is that it's actually justifying the resurgence of the right for many people. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But but why if, you know, given the nostalgia in uh, a lot of uh, people you know, in the eastern part of Europe, why is that not taking a more you know, contemporary left wing form? Well, if you actually look at some of the policies that are that are under the rubric of these right wing policy uh, parties, some of them are actually quite left wing. They're just not using the language of the left in the same way. And part of that has to do with racism, because the left generally tends to be internationalist and inclusive of foreigners and immigrants and ethnic and religious others for a variety of reasons. Countries like Poland and, and Hungary and Eastern Germany are not <laughs> tolerant of that kind of inclusivity that the left encourages. Although I do think it's important to, to, to recognize that at least in Germany, the, the left party 
does have a constituency. And there are many people who vote for Die Linke, which means the left in, in German. So it's, it's, a, it's complicated. But, you know, the, the country that I know the best is, is Bulgaria. And the right-wing party there, Ataka, it's called Attack. if you actually look at their political platform, you know, other than the xenophobia and the sort of religious uh, sort of ethno-national glorification of, you know, Eastern Christianity and Bulgarian identity, the, the actual platform, their political and economic agenda is very, very left. And so I think what happens in these countries is that there's this weird blurring of the left and the right, so that you kind of take from the left the things that you want, but you don't call it the left because politically, and you know, I don't know if this is true in the United States, some might argue that it is, politically, it's easier for people to be nationalists these days than it is for them to be leftists. Left politics require a kind of Uh, you, know, you focus your frustration on the actual economic system that is sometimes very hard to see and understand the, the operations of capitalism. And right politics allow you to just hate the immigrants or the women or the minorities that are taking your jobs away. And for many people, that's an easier message to swallow. And that's why people like, you know, in Germany, the alternative for D Germany, IFD is the name of the party or the Peace and Justice Party in Poland They use that language to mobilize people in support of what are kind of redistributive policies, but only in a very narrow nationalistic sense. Well, so with that kind of politics, you don't have to take on elites quite so uh, fervently. Yeah, exactly. You can, elites, um, elites are very quick to get on board with nationalist policies as long as their um, economic interests aren't threatened, whereas leftist politics are always going to be anti-elite, anti-economic elite, right? They're always going to be about some kind of redistribution. And, um, and nation nationalism doesn't necessarily require redistribution, right? If you could, especially if you have frustrated working class people, it's so much easier to distract them with talk about building a wall or talk about those immigrants who are taking our jobs or, or, or you know, challenging our civilization Um, our religion, our ethnic identity, taking our country away, whatever. I mean, this this takes different forms in different places, but that's that's so easy, and it's 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 based on fear. It's very immediate. Popular. I mean, it's populism, right? In this in this right populism, we know from history that it's it's very effective. It's a very difficult uh, situation because as they gain momentum, it becomes harder to rein in the debate and talk about like the history of these ideas or, or why it is that, that people are, are, are sort of being hoodwinked by their leaders. It, you know, I, I'm sure this is true in the United States now, the, the tone, there is no room for civilized debate. Everything is Twitter trolls and, you know, vitriol and outrage and nobody's sitting down to actually have a discussion about like the future of our democracy or the future of, of, the, of the world that we're living in and the real problems that we face in terms of climate change and economic inequality and, you know, other issues that are very pressing. We're just shouting at each other. I'm speaking with Kristen Godsey, author of Red Hangover from Duke University Press. Towards the end of the book, you take on the heresy of uh, questioning the sanctity of liberal democracy, parliamentary democracy. This does go way back, but you know, it does seem to have been intensified since uh, 1989. The use of democracy as a ploy to sell capitalism, and uh, people are finally seeing that was a, a real bait-and-switch operation. So how, how should we think about you know, democracy in, in this current environment? 
Absolutely. I mean, and I, and my answer is we really need to spend a lot of time thinking about democracy. So that last chapter is, you know, a series of observations about people who are really starting to question whether democracy and capitalism are compatible. You know, there was an idea, particularly ascendant in the 1990s, that democracy and capitalism together were going to bring prosperity to the world and, you know, all boats would rise. And that didn't turn out to be the case. In fact, what we've seen, Thomas Piketty's work is really important here, is that capitalism actually increases inequality in the long run rather than decreasing inequality. There was this interesting post-war blip. And of course, as you pointed out in our interview, um, that might have to do with the communist countries, right? The threat that communism posed sort of forced the West and Western capitalist countries to redistribute a little bit more. And then once the threat was taken away in 89 or 91, suddenly we could give up on democracy. I was at a talk uh, at the University of Pennsylvania a, a couple of months ago with a guy called Thomas Carothers, who is at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, who was a democracy promoter. He does overseas democracy promotion. And he was you know, very openly saying that, yes, democracy in the United States is a foreign policy tool. You export it and it serves American foreign policy interests. And it did for a long time. Now, that doesn't mean that a lot of people didn't sincerely believe that it was the best form of government. As Winston Churchill said, it's better than all others. But it, once it becomes a kind of cudgel that the United States can like hit over the head of countries that we want to dominate, you're not democratic enough. Then it ceases to be about the ideals of democracy. And it's more about like, you do what we say, uh, or else you're not democratic and therefore you don't have a legitimate government and we can intervene. We could even invade you. Like the whole policy of regime change is based on this idea that you need to have a democracy. So I think it's important to say, to think about what is democracy? What is democracy supposed to achieve? If it's about empowering people on the one hand politically and on the second hand about creating conditions of social and economic growth or social and economic spreading social economic rights to the majority of the population. Unfortunately, at least in the way that, you know, history has gone in the last 30 years, I think the the ideals of democracy have departed from the practice of democracy because of this weird um, conflation with capitalism so that capitalist free market goals have the freedom of the market and freedom of choice have come to, they've superseded like the, the ability to live a free life in an open and sustainable and, you know, more socially just um, polity. So that e the, e the economy has trumped the polity. Well, some you know, libertarians, going back to uh, Hayek and von Mises, but also in the present, you know, people who write for the Cato Institute or uh, Peter Thiel are very uh, explicit in saying that democracy and liberty are different things. Uh, and they, what they mean by liberty is really the freedom uh, for rich people to do as they want. Right, exactly. And that's where I think that the, like, you know, if you go back and, and you read Marx, uh, you know, this critique of that the capitalism, you know, is, 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 is inherently unequal. It creates this inequality. It, it, it distributes resources to the people who start the game with the most money um, and it never really can correct for that with them without some kind of social control over the market. And that social control should be a democratic state. I mean, and that's why libertarians are totally opposed to the state, because they understand that one of the state's roles is to even the playing field, right, to unrig the economy so that the people who start with the most don't always win. 
Well, it's also it's also supposed to enforce contracts and things like that. Yeah, property rights, right? I mean, of course, it's got to do that as well. Um, but but the but the the problem with the contemporary discourse around you know liberty and democracy being two different things. Democracy doesn't necessarily guarantee liberty because democracy can mean market regulation. It can mean taxation. It can mean a lot of things that libertarians are opposed to. But the idea of like enforcing property rights, for instance, is, I mean, that's not necessarily, um, it helps certainly the people who have property more, but people who, even people who have a little bit of property are protected by those rights. Um, But the kind of thing like, you know, tax cuts for the billionaires (laughs) doesn't help ordinary people. Property rights are kind of universal in a sense, um, as are criminal laws, right, or, or even military defense. I mean, different libertarians have different views on how much state you need to have. And then, of course, there are left libertarians or anarchists, anarcho-syndicalists, who also are opposed to the state for very different reasons. I mean, again, political theory and political philosophy around the role of the state is, is a complicated field. And I feel like we should be having, I mean, I, this is probably just pie in the sky these days, but we should be having an informed public discussion about these things, given the current impasse that we're in politically around the world. But it's devolving into increased polarization and, and vitriol on both sides. And I think that if we're going to prevent a dissolution, we need to start having conversations with each other. And, you know, I was hoping in my own very small way that this book would be a way to open that conversation. You know, it often seems like the, you know, the problems of communism, whether we're talking about the secret police or consumer shortages, or somehow seem, you know, as essential central facts of the system, while the problems of capitalist democracies like poverty, plutocracy, the commodification of everything, these are seen as like blemishes or imperfections that were cured with time. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, Jody Dean writes so eloquently about this in her book, The Communist Horizon. I feel like she makes this wonderful argument that the history of capitalism is allowed to be dynamic um, and the history of communism or socialism is very fixed and static on the Stalin era. And yeah, I mean, you you can talk about like slavery, you can talk about the genocide of Native Americans, you can talk about all sorts of really negative, you know, organ, elite black market organ uh, harvesting and all the negative things um, that happen under capitalist systems, not to mention crime and corruption and all those other things. And they're just, yeah, they're just blemishes. They're not, you know, fundamental flaws of the system, whereas somehow with, you know, especially a particular imagination of how life was in the Eastern Bloc under communism, it's it's fixed. It's that it's always going to be that way, no matter, you know, what time or what culture or what historical period, it's always going to be the same problems with communism. And I think that's a really that's very short sighted, because, of course, we know that there was an incredible diversity of communist countries and they all operated very differently and they had various levels varying levels of, you know, direct state oppression. I mean, like Yugoslavia was very open compared to a place like East Germany or the Soviet Union. So I think we need to have a little bit of nuance there. But the other thing that I want to say that is really important is that you talk to some of the right wing kind of cold warriors in this country and in the same breath, they will tell you that communism was a totally ineffectual political and economic system that would have collapsed under its own weight and contradictions And then turn around and say, but we needed to spend billions and billions and billions of dollars and have CIA operatives running around the world to make sure that communism didn't spread. So we had to throw all of these resources against the Eastern Bloc during the Cold War. 
but actually it would have fallen down by itself anyway, because it was such a bad system. And it seems to me that that's a little bit of a contradiction. Um, and very few people actually see that contradiction, which is strange to me because it's like, how can you justify some of the, you know, not so pleasant things that the United States did during the Cold War by saying we, we were fighting a political and economic system that was going to fall anyway. It was just a matter of time because, you know, consumers, they didn't have genes and, you know, they didn't, they had these travel restrictions and nobody was working and their economies were, were inefficient. So I just think that it's worth pointing out sometimes those contradictions. Final question. You have a fantasy application for asylum in Germany. Um, after <laughs> some Trump-like figure you know, cracks down in the U.S. and creates an authoritarian state. And one of the things that's held against you was that you were a Democrat. Uh, and the Democrats have participated in all kinds of horrors of the American system over the last decades. So are you still a Democrat? You know, I, I, I'm definitely uh, still a Democrat. I'm on the left of the Democratic Party for sure. But, you know, I wrote that story because where I was living in Eastern Germany, there were many professors who after in, in the East German universities who after 1989 lost their jobs and were replaced by West Germans just for the, the fact that they had been members of the East German Communist Party. And some of those people were in math or physics, you know, subjects that had absolutely no ideological content whatsoever. Just the fact that they were members of the party, which, let's face it, you had to be in order to be a university press uh, professor during that time. So I suddenly realized that one day <laughs> um, my party affiliation might be held against me. And, you know, I, I realized that, you know, I would be trying to convince, you know, some future, I think that story takes place in 2029. I might be sitting in, you know, an asylum office somewhere in Erfurt trying to d describe, you know, why I continued to participate in American elections and why I continued to participate in, you know, the system and be a member of this party when I saw the things going the way that they were going. And I, I think it's a question that we all have to ask ourselves. It's, it's not an easy question and it's, it's a difficult, it's a difficult time to think about political allegiances, given that things are shifting so rapidly. That was the second half of my interview with Christian Godsey, professor of Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Her book, Red Hangover, is just out from Duke University Press. It's really highly readable and fascinating throughout. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this bit from the fifth movement of Shostakovich's String Quartet No. 9, performed by the Sorrel Quartet. Till next week, bye. <laughs>